0: So when we were smaller, we kind of just had one giant engineering team. <laughs> what we realized about nine months ago, especially as we started working with these more public companies, was that actually like, the needs of the specific persona were so specific that like this kind of concept of engineers being able to fit the entire product and need space in their head, it became impossible. And so we had to like create those experts. And so instead, what we decided to do is have PMs specialize and basically embed with these teams and become experts
1: on the workflow. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. This episode is guaranteed to expand both your leadership, business acumen, and strategic thinking. We call this one a hybrid episode of the Engineering Leadership and Engineering Founders podcast. Scott Woody, CTO at Metronome, joins us to talk about how, as a startup, they made the transition to quickly operate at a global scale while working with complex public companies. We talk about the engineering leadership and the startup lessons from pivoting business models. Plus, we cover challenges from having multiple user personas and how to prioritize those problems from an engineering and a business perspective. We get into their approach to organizing their engineering org and mapping workflows to specific user personas. We talk about navigating the tension between product and infrastructure when both of them matter to your end customers. We also get into strategies for rationalizing which pricing model to have and then knowing when to pivot, plus creating a healthy relationship between finance and engineering. Let me introduce you to Scott. Scott is currently co-founder and CTO of Metronome, the usage-based billing platform built to help software companies accelerate their revenue. Prior to Metronome, Scott was a director of engineering at Dropbox, where he led the growth and monetization team. He previously co-founded Foundry Hiring, an ATS system that was later acquired by Dropbox. Enjoy our conversation with Scott Woody. First off, just want to say welcome to the show, Scott. It's so great to have you here joining Jerry and I. How are you doing? What's going on? Happy, today's Wednesday? Happy Wednesday.
0: I'm doing well. It's a nice day in Oakland. It's like supposed to be 90 degrees or something today. So I'm like gearing up for that. But uh, yeah, it's good.
1: One of those those classic Bay Area seasons where it's all shifted backwards just a little bit, where the summertime is in fact in the late fall. The special parts about living in the Bay Area. Some of the things I've been really excited to to talk to you about, Scott, is for you, like the operating context as an engineering leader at Metronome is super interesting. And so I'm going to paraphrase like my understanding. And so please expand and correct me. But, you know, I know Metronome started over three and a half years ago. And part of that dynamic is you've had to simultaneously, you know, build and operate as an early stage startup and quickly and rapidly build and operate at a global scale, and also serve and support public complex companies. So in terms of like the challenges and the dynamics that you're in, super complex, and a lot of lessons, I imagine, in those details. And so I guess to kick us off, I was wondering if you could maybe bring us in a little bit to the story of Metronome, and some of those inflection points that are at play or some of those dynamics and what that's like as an engineering leader. Bring us into your world a little bit
0: you know, metronome, what we are at a high level is what we call a billing platform. And so the historical way that people think about billing is it's the system that runs once a month when you're at the end of the month when your customers need to get invoices. And it kind of is a relatively simple thing. It's like count the number of users in my deployment, multiply by $10 a month, and then issue an invoice. And that that kind of is like a very simple billing process. And a company like Dropbox that like was their business model, but that simplicity on the surface to the end user is kind of belies all the complexity behind the scenes at Dropbox I I ran our growth engineering team and worked a lot with our our billing team and the reality was that the billing team at Dropbox was a pretty sizable like 50 plus engineer team and what they were doing the kind of where their complexity came in was not multiplying p times q it was really about getting a central source of data for how customers are using the product and then integrating that with a bunch of other third-party services, whether it's Salesforce or your revenue recognition system or your payment vendor like Stripe. And so billing was like this kind of sneakily complex problem at Dropbox and kind of led to quite a large team. And so when I decided to leave Dropbox and start Metronome, I really focused on like, how does one make a third-party version of the platform that we had at Dropbox? And that was kind of the goal our goal was to work with really large public companies, companies like Dropbox. And in order to service that large company set, like these are public companies, your billing system has to be like exactly accurate. And it has to be integrated deeply into the workflows of dozens and dozens of people. Like the number of people at Dropbox who care about Billing at the end of every month is measured in the dozens and dozens. And so we kind of knew going in that we were signing up for this like 10-year mission of how do you build a super flexible engine that can plug into all these disparate backend software systems? And how do you do that at public company scale, both data scale and workflow complexity scale? And so that was like our ambition from literally from day one. That was about four years ago when I decided to leave and kind of and start on this. Since then, we've been really, you know, we, we kind of knew that we were signing up for a 10-year journey. And so the first set of things that we did, the first year of life was about like, how do we find those first set of customers? How do, how do we get that first set of customers to trust like a two-person team to run their entire billing operation? It's like literally the heart of your business. There's like a big trust exercise there. But then secondarily, because we knew that the terminal state of this system was a big complex piece of infrastructure and workflow tooling. We also knew we needed to hire really great engineers out of the gates and actually quite a lot of them to get to where we wanted to be. And so the first year was about recruiting and then finding our first customers. And then what ended up happening is we kind of fell into the usage base, this kind of like consumption-based business model, because what we saw was in the market, no one was solving this problem. And so if you were a public database company or a database company at all, and you wanted to charge per machine second of your virtualized database running, you actually had to build a ton of monitoring and infrastructure in order to just do the counting statistics to be able to charge your customers. And then you also had to build all the billing logic and all the pricing logic for yourself. And so you don't have to like, do it all yourself. And we saw this big opportunity in the first year and we focused the company entirely on usage-based billing. And so you know after that first year, we started signing like bigger companies like Series B, Series C companies, And our goal was always to work in the public enterprise. And so every year, we've kind of been like climbing the scale ladder of of companies that we're working with. And then this year, we're, you know, blessed to work with customers like OpenAI and NVIDIA. And so this year has been kind of the fruition, or at least the first touch with these like public enterprises. And what we're realizing is just that, like, we were right, this is a big, complex problem. It's going to take us 10 years to like get to a great solution. But along the way, we kind of had to like serially invest in you know, core parts of the platform to be able to work with those companies. And the ironic thing or the interesting thing is now at our scale, we're about 50 people going on, let's say 80 in the next six months or something like that. When we work with one of these larger companies, like the team of people who are working in metronome is like... 20, 30 people it's like half of our company or something like that like in size and like these are people who are consuming the software that like that you know the 30 people are writing and so it's like this like kind of interesting tension where you're like oh gosh like the finance team at a, at a large public company is bigger than
1: our entire company like how do we how do we rationalize that and there's a lot of interesting things there The complexity that you're talking about there, I think is so interesting, especially when you're talking about being in sort of this complex infrastructure space and in this sort of complex workflow tooling space. Can you share a little bit more about like the complexity behind the stakeholders and people using this tool? And how does that impact the challenges that you have to face as an engineering leader?
0: So the way I like to think about it is Metronome kind of has two products, and they have two very distinct user personas. The first product is a piece of data infrastructure. It's like, an engineer is the customer, there's like an engineer inside of a company, let's like say NVIDIA, they stream us a bunch of data related to usage. And that product that that engineer is consuming is like a high reliability piece of data infrastructure, essentially doing counting statistics. If you're familiar with Datadog, it's not too dissimilar from something like that. And the kind of expectations of that customer set is like developer experience, it's low latency, it's high uptime, all that good stuff. But That's just how you get the data in. And then finance or product management or whoever controls pricing and packaging needs kind of a interface layer to that like massive amount of data that's being streamed in. And so unlike a data dog, where like, an engineer mostly like owns both halves of that equation and metronome. The second half of the product is all of the workflows and pricing and packaging logic that's being interfaced with by a non-engineer and frequently someone who's like in finance or maybe in sales ops sometimes or product management. And so like really we kind of break those two things apart where you have this high data scale problem and then you have this workflow challenge. And then the consumers of the workflow are FinOps, sales ops, product management, folks who are used to working in systems like NetSuite or Oracle or maybe Salesforce, and we're providing them essentially a control plane for their business model, which in absence of metronome doesn't exist. Like they're having to like file a JIRA ticket to, can we please change our business model on February 1st? to this and then an engineer goes and codes that up and then makes a transition. So in place of that, metronome gives like a actual like UI UX for for interfacing with that. So really in some sense, I think we have two products that sort of very different personas within a within a large enterprise.
2: So those engineering teams at a large company need to interact a lot with their Finance ops and sales, which is not an easy thing to do, given how far they are apart from each other and they're, they're in totally entirely different world. Yeah. So that reduces yeah. a lot of complexity for running a large business because cross team collaboration like that is the general a lot of headache. But now you adapt to you know being a uh, sitting in the middle and coordinating.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and in fact I would say that's actually one of the hidden values of using metronome, which is that, you know, if you if you go talk to a billing team inside of a large public company you will find a set of people who are pretty passionate about their end consumer, which may be a finance person or something like that. But those teams tend to be pretty under-resourced and understaffed. And the challenge for them is that their customers are quite, you know, they have a lot of needs that are not being, you know, not always being met. It's like an internal tool challenge that is like pretty traditional but married with a very high data scale problem, it's like that internal billing team has to both be like a world class infrastructure team and somehow a really great product team at the exact same time. And it's under resourced because the business is like typically under resources, internal projects, it kind of puts them in a really, really tough spot. And so when you bring in something like metronome, you in some sense are kind of saying, okay, we have an entire team of post sales people, including myself, like I interface with clients every single day. And what you're getting in exchange is like that engineering team doesn't need to like become an expert in like your internal engineering team doesn't have to become an expert in the kind of arcana of of finance operations. But like, we can do that instead. And you can like have our team kind of interfacing with your internal experts. And you kind of obviate the need for that internal team to kind of honestly do the what I think is the impossible. It's like a really hard problem to solve in an internal st- state. And what you see is that a lot of those teams, they're staffed with people who have like the best intentions, but they just don't have enough hours in the day to kind of meet the needs of their users sometimes. Yeah,
2: because they have to prioritize against, you know, things that matter to their bottom line right? This is the internal process. It's not that, you know, it's you're going to lose. Uh, it's the proposition pred- decision. And also, it's hard for people to be excited to work, build an internal tool that are not necessarily the end user or not even understand the impact of that. They're, they're not living the life of, you know, finance ops and, and, and sales ops. And for founders of your, your uh, audience, that this is a good way to look at business opportunities. Like if you're working in a large uh, corporation, Finding a place where, you know, cross-team collaboration is so hard. And that's the opportunity. Looks like this is one of them.
0: Oh, definitely. Like, I joined Dropbox in 2013. And for about two years, I worked on internal tools there. And I had been a founder before. And I loved it. Because what it meant was, like, my customers were in the building. And they were my co-workers. And I could go eat with them, you know. And so it was, like, the best iterative feedback loop you could ever ask Mm -hmm. for but like as you get bigger that becomes harder right because your finance team may be in a different country or your finance team has like just completely divergent priorities from what you and your engineering team want i think a very productive way to find startup ideas is to look for things that like currently an internal team is doing and understand that especially as you scale up running and retaining talented people on internal teams is really tough. Like the way I always put it was, like if you were a t- Dropbox engineer, like you you could meet Dropbox's engineering bar and you got hired on the infrastructure team, are you gonna work on sync? Or are you gonna work on this internal project? And I would argue that the internal project is like as important, but like to uh, most infrastructure engineers are gonna go for the super high data scale problem. They're gonna go for like rewriting the sync engine. And so what it means is that internal teams are kind of constantly starved, which is another way of saying that that internal users, their need is not being met. And so there's got to be a business opportunity there.
2: And also the quality bar is different. Like when you go internally, I only have one set of customers, one set of requirements. Not thinking as a platform where you need to be, be really in you know, your SL is your reliability and scalability has to be really high. So, as any user, like from the ops teams, you want that not just uh, using a better product that are you're the only customer, maybe the first customer.
0: Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that um the truth is that when you're in that FinOps seat, like especially because all these business processes are constantly changing. Like, like take consumption billing. To me, this is like an emergent, like it's like it's an old business model, but it's one that's changing a lot and changing very fast like you can see it in ai like ai has really taken to consumption or usage-based billing quite a bit but you see like a very rapid evolution of that stuff and that rapid evolution means that the needs of the FinOps user inside that business are changing really fast and so If you are working with an internal team versus like a product that is incentivized and working with the market, as that internal user, you might differentially choose to work with the external vendor because that product is going to change at a much faster rate than most internal teams can meet. Um, And I think that's just like a consequence of like the competitive dynamics of third party software.
1: So this is kind of a question that I think gets to sort of the same point. So part of it is, how do you really? push the clarity of that persona to engineering. And the other side of that is also then like navigating the tension between like the product engineering side and the infrastructure side, when both of those matter to like those end customer personas, because I think that part is is super interesting when it comes to like, it's like the whole balance prioritization and clarity component, like that, that dynamic is super interesting.
0: Yeah, I will say this is something that we have struggled with, and I would argue are still figuring out, but we've made some recent strides that I feel pretty good about. So when we were smaller, we kind of just had one giant engineering team, <laughs> just like 15, 10, 12 people, just like we're all on the same team. And what you work on, you start to specialize a bit, like there's some people who are more infrastructure leaning and some people who are more front end leaning. But what we realized about nine months ago, especially as we started working with these more public companies, was that actually like the needs of the specific persona were So specific that like this kind of concept of engineers being able to understand, like, fit the entire product and need space in their head, it became impossible for me. It became impossible. Like, I know exactly when it was. It was middle of December last year, where like I was like, I actually cannot. Like, even if I spend all my time trying to understand all of the needs across our client base, it's actually impossible for me to hold it all in my head. And I'm not even trying to act on it. I'm just trying to like store it. And when, I had that, when we had that realization, what we realized is actually now is the right time to start to take the kind of bigger team and focus it based on kind of two things that are very related, which is like we basically started to fork the team into specific workflows. And the workflows are typically one-to-one mapped to a specific persona. And so, for instance, we have a team that's focused on ingestion and processing of data. The persona that's mapped to that is engineering. And the workflow is, I'm an engineer at OpenAI. I need to be able to reliably get data into, into Metro. And I need to be able to read that data out. And so like, it was kind of this coherent thing. And so we just started staffing teams against these specific personas. And we started putting up a little bit of, like. while it was nice to imagine that people could hold, like, it's like I could also understand engineering and understand the finance use case. We started to say, you know, that's nice, but like that isn't an expectation and we need to start to specialize a bit. And so we actually like literally started creating teams around workflows and then mapped those to personas. That worked reasonably well because we had seeded each team with a couple of really strong product engineers. But then what happened is when we started getting into the details of a larger customer, you're starting to talk to someone who's like a finance operations person. They've done this job for 10 years at this company. Their workflows are incredibly detailed and incredibly complex. And what we realized was that a good product engineer could intuit their way to like a third of the problems and solutions. But like, actually, it was like a full time job just to sit with the end user and deep, deep, deep dive. And most product engineers, I think they hit hit a limit where they didn't have either the bandwidth or the stomach to kind of go actually become a thin ops person because we were never going to hire an engineer who was a former finance person, which is not possible. And so instead, what we decided to do is have PMs specialize and basically embed with these teams and become experts on the workflow. And then their job is to back translate that to the product engineers at the right level of fidelity. But when you're building like expert use tools, you in some sense have to have experts on your team. And so we had to like create those experts because we couldn't find like a finance person who was also not our PM bar. Like It was like a really hard search. So we just said, okay, let's hire a great generalist PM. And then your job is now to become a finance person and then back translate that into product requests and then work with the product engineer to give them the right amount of context so they can make good product engineering decisions. And so we started doing that. And then the other thing we started doing is phoning experts. Like we just started retaining consultants who were experts. Like it's like basically like you're a FinOps person, you're on speed dial, and we will pay you whatever to answer the phone at any time. And then the last thing, we, we have this concept of a design partnership with a lot of our larger customers. And in the design partnership, we go in and we say, look, we are not experts in this particular workflow yet. We will be, and we want you to help us get there in exchange we need to have like more or less unfettered access to you continuously for the next nine months. We're going to come and ask really dumb questions. We're going to ask really smart questions eventually. And eventually we're going to teach you because we're going to have like a market understanding and we're going to help bring technology from this other company into you. But it's going to start out, we're going to be kind of novices and you're going to help train us. And we literally selected clients who were amenable to essentially like teaching us until we became the teacher and that's kind of what we've been doing you know honestly for the past four years but this year kind of hit its head it's like hit that breaking point from a like we need to specialize a lot more and now we have more or less specialized teams that kind of you one-to-one map a team to the persona and that person's job the pm's job is to become basically could do that job at a you know large five, fortune 500 company
1: I love this roadmap to go from early stage engineering team to specialized teams, like the different modalities that you introduced from like that specific moment you called out in December, where you're like, I can't even hold all this into my head to then creating experts, embedding experts, building an expert team and a flow there on top of then a whole like design partner program. I could see how all three or all four of those things complement each other and help reinforce a better understanding of the customer problems and then how to actually create better solutions for those people. I think that's, that's super cool and elegant, the way that they all sort of reinforce each other.
0: Yeah, I, I would say it was very organic and not planned, but that's kind of how it's netted out. And I would say it's been very effective. And one thing I would add is that um, as those product folks are becoming experts, I think one litmus test here, there's kind of like two ways to do this. One is like having frequent readouts or brown bags internally so that you're forced to teach. And teaching is the best way to know if you're actually an expert. And then the other thing that you quickly find is when you have like a customer base where there's like a really big customers are kind of like dominating your time. But then you have a like lot of earlier stage companies that are kind of like 5, 10 years away from that monster company size. You get to teach the customers who are earlier in their journey, right? So we're working with companies that are SOX compliant and have been for the past 50 quarters. And those companies, you know, we're learning from them. We're going and talking to companies that are like, I want to IPO in the next two years, but I haven't hired a SOX team yet because it's like, you know, no one's IPOing in this market. But what can Metronome tell me about what I will need? And so you get a chance to teach internal other experts, like, you know, like the FinOps person at a 500 person startup, you get to work with them and you get to test your knowledge more or less instantaneously. That's a great part of working across the spectrum. But it's also a great way to kind of refine your expertise really quick. Because if you say something dumb to one of these people, they'll you'll know, (laughs) you'll know instantly. And you'll know, like, that does not make sense. And you will get that feedback more or less instantly. And then the mark of a good person is they correct
2: their ignorance and, and move forward. Given the PM is sitting deeply with the customer and then their requirement there, try to be a kind of a domain expert. And if you have a couple of people doing that through, with different customers and they're bringing, as you mentioned, every company may have very, their specific way of doing finance, et cetera. What do you do to standardize the, the knowledge base? Like one person, drops a lot of things. And that communication, I guess, is challenging too because that, that person needs to communicate effectively to their immediate team. And then more to do the rest of the company as well over time because they inform inform where the product is going right as a new engineer join a new person join you want to, uh, you want to make easier transition to become a you can't even know where to find the information. you can't even have the basics of you know, this domain, what's the process you have in place?
0: I won't pretend like we have this solved because I definitely don't think we do,
2: but I can say some things that
0: we've done that have worked and some things that we're trying. So I think the first thing is kind of accepting that this is the challenge, right? So if you take like a piece of software like Dropbox, like honestly, the complexity of workflows is pretty simple, you know, it's like I could teach you the 10 workflows that people use with it in like an hour, and you wouldn't maybe understand some of them like it's like if you're in like a HIPAA compliant environment, why do you do X, Y, Z, like, sure, there's some Arcana, but it's not that much. In this case, you kind of just have to accept that there's like four or five people whose entire lively, like work depends on the data in your system. And they have entire, you know, they have full time jobs that are consuming this and interacting with this data. And so it's going to be complex, like learning each of their jobs and back propagating it through the organization is going to be hard. So you kind of just have to say, okay, understand that this is hard, and then make sure that you spend the proper time to share those learnings. So I would say it starts with acquire the expertise internally through spending time with customers and really working it through. The second thing is write it down. What I find is that most people, when you write it down, the first draft is like complete nonsense. You're like, it's like a good filter for like, reifying or kind of refining your thoughts, like kind of taking it into specifics, writing it down also matters a lot. Because if you're especially a distributed company, like that writing propagates a lot faster. And it also exposes like errors and logic very quickly. So I say writing it down matters a lot. And then I think the last thing is this teach others, like, you know, if you go try to teach an engineer, like the nuances of a finance workflow, they're smart enough to understand it. And when you say something that kind of doesn't pass the sniff test, you'll instantly hear it. And they'll ask a question. And you're like, I have no idea. Like, I just I like, why did they do this? I don't know and an engineer will never accept that answer and that's a good sign to go back and say like okay i guess i incompletely understand this part of this workflow and so honestly kind of explaining to engineers explain you know like that explain like i'm 5 type of thing i think is a really good litmus test for do you understand it deeply enough and then i think the last stage i would say is like in addition to writing it down and kind of enshrining it i think is recording like brown bag talk like doing brown bag talks and then recording them we found to be a very effective way for like newly onboarding people to just go like here's 20 hours of brown bags like good luck but like go through them and then at PM go talk to them and like have them explain it to you and have them ex- like why is this part of this workflow called rating and what's the difference between metering mediation and rating and like why do they do that in telecom? And I think if you're just like kind of curious and you ask a lot of why questions you kind of You know, as long as you're like humble and you say like ask why and you realize uh, I don't know the answer why and then I'm in my job is now to go find out. Like as long as you have that loop going, I feel and you surround yourself with people who also ask those kinds of questions. The learning actually comes pretty fast. And actually, I do think this kind of goes back to what's your culture. Like if your culture is like you know you can never say a wrong thing, none of this works, right? Because then it's like if I have a flaw in my presentation, that's like a hugely negative thing for me in my career. And the truth is, that doesn't work here. Like the knowledge space is so vast that we have to have a learning biased culture and one where you're allowed to fail. Basically, it's not realistic. Otherwise, like it just wouldn't we would be still in the dark ages if we if we weren't allowed to like fail in public. And I'm the first to admit that like, I understand a lot of this stuff, I could learn more and I try to
1: learn more. So I guess that's the other thing I would say is like the cultural component, I think matters a lot. Scott, one of the things I've been excited to talk about is I think that Metronome, you know, as a business in the problem space that you're in has some pretty unique exposure to a couple engineering leadership challenges that folks face. And the headline for both of those, going back to what you were talking about, teaching customers. So this idea of like the expertise around pivoting to a usage-based business model. And you have kind of an interesting intersection of like both as a business, what do you have to do, but also the implications on engineering leaders. The other challenge I think is interesting is like this keys around a successful relationship between engineering and finance. Like since you're serving both engineering and like the FinOps like perspective, it's an interesting like point of view in terms of those types of relationships. You know, when you're talking about teaching customers, like let's talk about this pivot to a usage based business model. So what's that like? And what are the implications for engineering leaders when that's happening? Like what do you need to do and what do engineering leaders need to think about in this type of scenario when they have to make that pivot?
0: I mean, I think we actually have a pretty good object lesson of how to do this very badly in the news right now. So if you, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this Unity developer business model pivot, but in I'm going to butcher the details. But like in essence, what happened is Unity decided to shift their business model to one where developers pay per, I think it was, download of their game. And so basically, they're they're shifting from a, like, pay us a flat amount of, you know, however many developers are using our Unity engine, pay us $10 a month or whatever it was, to something that's much more, well, if your game gets a lot of downloads, then pay us more money. And that, to me, is like a shift from a seat-based license or a flat fee-based approach to a more consumption-based one. And the, like, intention there is, like, look, if you, like, we give this engine away for very cheap if your game does really well, we want to make money on it. And it's like a pretty, you know, sane exchange of value. But if you look at what has happened, their stock price got destroyed. And developers, especially smaller developers, were just like, enraged by this. And I would look at that and say, like, that is what is a danger anytime you shift your business model. Customers get used to your existing business model, and anytime you make a change, it is scary. And then changing in a, to a consumption-based model requires a certain amount of finesse in order to do it well. And I don't think it's any more more or less risky, no matter what. Like I think just changing a business model is always like has a lot of error and risk in it. So like when I think about this, I look at that and say like, well, what would you do differently to kind of maybe make that tra- like still make the same transition, but make it easier. And so I think the like lessons I took away from that or the way that I think about every time you're changing your business model, I think the first and foremost thing is have a good answer for whether this is a forward-going change for new customers or it's a retroactive change for existing customers. And those two things are very different because if you are changing it for retroactively for customers, they're going to feel like you're rug-pulling them, Right. Unle- and or they could feel that way, like if you, depending on how you do it. And so you got to really reason about it from their perspective. Like I jumped on this bandwagon, I'm using your product. I've committed, I've architected my whole company around your product. And now you're changing the like value exchange equation for me. Like, how do you ease that transition? So like really think through what I think of as the grandfathering problem. At Dropbox, we ran into this all the time. We were constantly doing price experiments, but we had this concept of, well, we want to grandfather people who have been with us into the, keep them on the old pricing model and then give them like two years to say like, in two years, we're gonna change this for you. We're changing it immediately for new customers. Two years, you're gonna ease into this and like really work through the communication part of it. And on the engineering side, this is horrible because now you have to hold state depending on when a customer joined they're going to be paying completely differently than if they're new and so like from an engineering leadership perspective understand that like the right thing to do is this concept of grandfathering but that basically dramatically increases the complexity on the engineering side, because not only do you have to hold two models of the universe, you also have to allow customers to shift between them, or at least will shift at least one direction. And how do you do that? And how do you think that through? And so it kind of introduces this like, incredible amount of complexity on the engineering side. So it's like one grandfather, and then allow customers who have been with you and loyal with you, like a big amount of time to adjust and maybe they decide this new value prop is not for them and they're going to turn off and honestly that's for the best like the, if you if you're sure this is the right business model then you know your goal is to like get customers on to it but give them a lot of time Um, especially the more like you know like let's say Salesforce tomorrow was like we're changing from seats to consumption every single one of their customers needs to do honestly years of planning to figure out how that changes their price set, how that changes their you know spend all that good stuff so that's like one thing second thing I would say is just when you're moving to consumption, there's a lot of things that change. So one of them is consumption is great because you pay for what you use, but it's bad because you pay for what you use, meaning your kind of theoretical cost is unbounded or your spend is unbounded. So how do you get a customer comfortable with that? Well, one way you can do it is you can show them given how you've been using the product Here's what you will pay in the new regime. So like, honestly, I think if you're, if you're going to move to a usage-based model, you should, at the same time you announce this, ship a calculator that just like literally shows people how their pricing will change if we cut over today. And honestly, almost 100% of the time, the price will go down. And if a customer knew that at the time that you announced this, like you ship them a personalized calculator that just said, Oh, my cost goes down. So the net effect is I pay less sick, I'm, I'm in that would solve all these problems. But building that calculator is really hard and all that stuff. But like, I actually think that would be a huge, like that would change the game. Because if you like, I think another company that ran into this recently, one of these like website hosting companies moved to a more a consumption based model, and they, they announced it, everyone threw up and was like, this is a horrible idea. And then two weeks later, they came Came out with like, here's the analysis: 99.99% of our customers will pay like 50% less. And if they just led with that, like the the reaction would have been completely different, and it would have like saved them a million years of pain. And the truth is, when you're making this change, you have that analysis somewhere. It's probably living in fp somewhere. Just find a way to externalize it and lead with that, because <laughs> because if you lead with the value prop of like, by the way, your bill is going to go down by 50%, like everyone's going to be like, yes, please sign me up. And so I think that's another like tiny trick. And then the last thing I would say for engineering leaders that's like super, super important is if you're on a seat model or a flat fee model, customers receive their invoice like once a month and they think about billing zero times a month, right? Because like if I'm for Slack, I know I'm paying $10 times the number of employees, like whatever. Like I, I can keep that in my head. I know like roughly every quarter how much I'm going to pay and it's never going to change. But for a consumption-based business, like my AWS bill is the exact opposite, We have like a standing meeting every month to review our AWS bill. And I'm like, you can bet, I'm like looking at every line item and saying, why did this 10X or why did this go up by 5% or traffic only went up by one, you know, whatever it is. So prepare for that. Customers are gonna engage with your invoice a lot more frequently and continuously throughout the month. They're not gonna never look at it. They're gonna look at it all the time. They're gonna ship some new use case onto your product and they're gonna wanna know within days sometimes, how much their spend has changed. And if their spend has gone up by a factor of two, that might be great for your business. But if their CEO isn't expecting that, then they might go back and say, like, how do we cut this tool out of our tool chain? And so that's like the downside of a usage based model. So expect that your customers will engage with your business model a lot more in a consumption way. That's why we have like a dashboard feature. That's why we have real time alerts. That's why we have all this stuff that we've built. But in reality, as an engineering leader, the problem shifts from this batch once a month problem to a continuous real time problem. And that's like, that's like literally the biggest possible engineering shift you could ever have. And so like, no, when your CEO comes to you and says you want to do a consumption based business model, and you're like, I haven't thought about it that much. Know that like, there's a lot of second and third order things that will come with it, it doesn't mean that consumption isn't the best. I obviously think it is because it's very value aligned. But it's not a like, flip a switch and then I'm done. Like, look at what happened to Unity and see the cautionary tale.
2: I can't help to ask a question that as a, a new founder, figuring out the pricing model is so critical. And this is typically the area that taking off founders and hearing leaders that did not, never have to deal with this in the past. And you have seen this a lot. How do people that should rationalize, the other founders should rationalize, should I do proceed model or consumption model? And do they need to start with one and pivot to the other at one point?
0: I would say a couple of things I've observed is the only question in my mind that matters or the primary question that matters is what is the value your customer is getting and how do they understand that value? That is the job of pricing. The pricing is to essentially formalize the value equation. And what I find with most people on new products is that they rightly don't know the value, right? Because it's a new product. It's new in the world. And so if you knew the value equation immediately, like you just don't. So so in practice, what I would say is you should approach it with like a lot of humility, but you should have a very strong hypothesis about what is the value. And you should find ways of testing the hypothesis. And a lot of people will go and just directly ask users. And the truth is, I think this is much more of a marketing exercise and a contextualization exercise than it is like there is a right answer and you just got to go find it. Like you actually have to shape the right answer. And then you have to like, you know, like like let's say you're a database company or like a cloud database company, what's the value your user get? If you're iceberg, it's probably something about the amount of data I'm storing and the length of time I'm storing it. But if I'm a hot database in the like in the read path for a sign up, then probably it's less about absolute amounts of data stored. It is more about availability and latency. And those two things that could be exact same product under the hood. But the value that you're getting and the way you frame that value to users, you have to really understand it really well. And so like, if you don't have a good hypothesis for value, like, go back to that step and figure that out. So then once you have a value hypothesis, I think you have to like figure out, how do I test this hypothesis in the wild? And there's a lot of ways of doing this. I don't think that there's any perfect way, but I do think talking to customers, getting their feedback. And then understanding it as, a mar- as much a marketing challenge as a value discovery challenge. Like you actually have to sell the value. If you're that theoretical database company, how does the messaging that the sales team is using, how does it ladder to value? Is it the first thing they hear from that, that salesperson? Does it tie back to the ultimate pricing model or does it not? So like, a good, like I'll use our own pricing and packaging. We charge for data retention and storage. Okay, why do we do that? Well, we're a financial system. You will use our data to recognize revenue and issue invoices, and that is a financial thing. And we have to do it for a long period of time because you will be held to an audit period that is very long if you're like a public company. We are charging like so. The value to the customer is we store all this like large amounts of data securely and exactly accurately, and we pro- and we process it exactly accurately. And we make it available at any time to your finance compliance workflows. Like that's the value and. Because that is the value, we charge for storing that stuff. Now, if we didn't think that was a value prop that we actually offered, us charging for storage feels really weird to people because it's like, well, you're just like taking in data and it's like doesn't cost you that much to store it. Help me understand why. And and for a long time, we didn't lead with the value prop that I just said. And people would like throw up all over us charging for data storage. And we're like, no, we are a data engine. We are a data processing engine. And you really need access to this data all the time. And once we started doing that, like customers understood a lot more, but that's a marketing exercise. It's a sales exercise. And so I think the advice I would give is understand the value hypothesis, sell it, you know, like literally in a sales or marketing or website or whatever. And then the last is like, be paranoid and always look for the better update. No matter what pricing you have, it's never perfect. And you should be learning from the market. And the other thing that will happen is your competitors will update the product feature set will change and pricing needs to be a dynamic thing so in our company we are like every six months we revisit our pricing and packaging both the numbers and this form because we know that like the market is so dynamic that we need to be keeping up with competitors keeping up with like our product suite etc so don't treat it like a static thing it is a continuous thing for you and don't be afraid to make mistakes like the unity example is a good cautionary tale and i think you can You can actually iterate quite a lot over time. And don't try to get it right on swing one. It's like, as a small company, it's literally impossible.
1: I actually thought one company I thought who did this pricing adjustment really interesting in an interesting way was Aura ring when they went from, you know, just the one time purchase of the ring to the subscription. And I thought the communication flow was was really interesting there, especially when you start to become aware of like the reasons or the business motivations for why you're changing your pricing model, then you can start to feel really icky behind some of those decisions unless they're communicated in a way where you do feel like there's that value alignment.
0: Especially when you're selling enterprise software, it's like your customers actually want you to stay in business. If you just tell them, like, here's why we're doing it. And here's the value you get from this. Like, again, it's all about you have to lead with customer value. If it's not all about customer, like, you know, the aura ring example, I don't, I don't I'm not super familiar with it, but I could imagine I'm wearing one. So like, I could imagine it is something about providing you continuous access to this information and updates all the time, whatever it is, if I lead with that value then I'm like, yeah, of course I want that. That sounds awesome. But it's like, if you don't lead with the value, if you lead with the like, like, honestly, I think most people get it twisted, they focus on the impact to them, and why I have to do this and why this is good for my business. Customers don't care. They care about getting more for less or getting more value. And then if you explain also why this matters to you and why it's sustainable for you as a long term business, sure, they're going to support you in that because they don't want you to go out of business. But at the same time, if you don't lead with their value, like you're not doing it right, you're doing it wrong.
1: Scott, I know we're, we're at our time to kick off our rapid fire questions. First question What are you reading or listening to right now? I just listened
0: to the Elon Musk biography. That was interesting, <laughs> um, very intense, uh, but it makes me feel much better about my life. And my life is way less stressful than that. Um, and I'm also reading the Isaac Asimov, the Foundation series, because I saw the TV show and I'm like, the books are so much better
1: this is that's the encouragement i needed to pick that one up uh, because i've been on a big sci-fi bend for five years you should read it it's like the most readable sci-fi it just has a very good pace i love it i'm in I'm, i'm getting it question number two what's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you in grad
0: school i did a lot of classes at the design school at stanford the d school this is before I worked in tech or anything. And they like really hammered in this like customer only approach to everything. It's like the customer is the beginning and end of everything that you do in business or in product or anything. I think that like design school methodology of like start and end with the customer and their needs and only think about those. And if you do that, well, you will find a value equation that works. It's like the only way I think about honestly, any problem. And I think it's been incredibly helpful both in larger companies and in smaller companies. I think most people, they're missing, they they do not have a good grasp of who their customer is and why their customer is getting a ton of value from what you're doing, whether you're an internal team or working and shipping to like hundreds of millions of customers. I think people
1: are just too divorced from the customer. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting, but hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
0: So this is like a little weird of an answer, but uh, we work a lot with larger companies and the data warehouse trend I think is old. But it is, I think people are sleeping on it quite a lot. We originally built a product for export over API. And like that was very important in you know 2020, 2021. But what we're seeing is like the uptake rate of the data warehouse as a replacement for API access as a small company. It is honestly astounding to me. And I think people like, I don't know how much people think about data warehouses. I think you should all be thinking about it 10 times more and you'd still be underthinking it. I really do believe Frank Slootman is correct here. This is a huge paradigm shift in the enterprise.
2: But instead of building APIs, it's better just to have the data in the warehouse and make it easier, more flexible to access. I think, they,
0: I think customers want both. And like to us, we've actually promoted data export via data warehouse as co-equal with APIs. So like when we build something, we build a UI, API,
1: and data export at the exact same time. That's one of those trends that I guarantee you almost a lot of people are sitting and like, shoot, I'm definitely sleeping on that.
0: I was too until we launched this feature and then had like 80% uptake, right? <laughs> like, it was, uh, I was ignorant until like nine months ago. I still am.
2: But. Love it. Yeah. This is because the the complexity of the customer makes like they're need and people prefer different things.
0: Yeah. And like the other thing is like, if you have data that multiple different customers want, how do you design one API that cuts it in all the ways those different personas want? And the answer is you don't. And so you just get it into a data warehouse and then that becomes an internal problem and one that they prefer to solve internally. These tools are actually quite accessible to like a large variety of teams. And what you find within these larger enterprises is once there's a data warehouse that has sufficient, great, there's an entire team of people whose entire job is just cutting up data from it. And they want to join it on data that you don't have any access to. So honestly, it's like an
1: infinitely better paradigm. Last question. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now?
0: Yeah, it's less a quote is a concept, but this is from the Elon Musk biography, but basically there's this concept that was promulgated, which is like when you're cutting something, whether it's like a riff, God forbid, or you're cutting scope from a project, if once you launch the project, you don't instantaneously realize that like 10% of what you cut actually is part of the MVP. It's so like if you don't ship an MVP and then immediately say, actually this 10% that we literally said we could cut, we have to instantly add in as like a hot fix or something like that. If you're not doing that, you're over engineering. And I think that's a really helpful principle in almost everything that if you're not like purposefully adding back in, then you are undercutting. And undercutting is just really bad across the board. It just like leads to bloat and slowness and all this good stuff. And so I've started to like cut too deep and then add back in. It's actually really easy to add, it's impossible to cut.
1: Scott, an incredible conversation, just like a rapid fire dive into all these different approaches and principles, like from everything from pricing and making that pivot to consumption-based business models to everything around like the operating context with Metronome, Um, just a ton of fun. Thank you so much for sharing stories and all of the different approaches. We appreciate it. Awesome, appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.